Hello listeners, welcome to Itihasa, a Indic history podcast, and you're listening to episode 21 of the season Vijayanagara. Before I begin, I would like to offer my heartfelt thanks and a huge kudos to all those listeners who have successfully made it through with the marathon nine-part foundation series of this season. I've had many listeners reach out and write thoughtful reviews and messages telling me how much they loved listening to and emotionally moved they were by the foundation episodes. The various characters within the foundation episodes were really fascinating in the sense that they display a wide spectrum of human emotions and listeners seem to have been connected to journeys of these characters and slipped into their shoes for a fleeting moment. Most history books and research as a rule of thumb are normally dry and they tend to be just a statement of facts minus any human element or consciousness in it the memories and thought process of the individuals has been lost forever for all practical purposes the imprint of their actions and decisions is all that's left for us to study and decipher for me personally the foundation episodes were not just some dry chapters from history books they were the intensely powerful chain of stories that were linked by both tragic and powerful characters and this is exactly what the itihasa india history podcast is all about it is about stories of these individuals who were lost in the shifting sands of time and unfortunately ended up becoming mere fossils for us bringing them to life by giving them a benefit of doubt when justified and understanding them as people and individuals who are just like you or me was the main goal just like how our modern world has most humane to despicable characters so did every other age both these worlds are more similar to each other than different judging them means we are also judging ourselves in short history is a cycle and what goes around comes around it's good to keep reminding ourselves of that fact once in a while now coming back to this episode we resume the main track of the season after the long detour we took for the foundation series we will once again start exploring the various and interesting aspects of the empire's history that have some tremendous insights embedded within them insights that can be very much relevant to this day and help us to avoid making similar mistakes in the future in this episode we will explore one of the most important chapters of vijayanagara history the battle of raichur this battle is fascinating not just because of the intense drama and intrigue that engulfs it but also due to the far reaching impact it had on the fortunes of the empire in the long run and over the next few episodes we will see how the battle of raichur was a prelude to the epic battle of tallikota a conflict that forever reconfigured the geopolitics of the deccan plateau as part of the research for the series of episodes i have extensively referred to dr m bosubabu's 
Material Background to the Vijayanagara Empire, published in 2018, and K. A. Nilakanta Shastri's A History of South India, published in 1958, and most importantly, as one of the primary sources, I've referred to a work called Power Memory Architecture by Richard M. Eaton and Philip B. Wagner. Now let's come back to the episode. Most of the times, battles are rarely spontaneous or triggered by random or unrelated events. Battles and wars tend to be the manifestation of bigger forces at play and long simmering tensions between and within. While the biggest culprits usually tend to be religion, geography and economics, as such one cannot ignore the personal dynamics and eccentricities of the combatants themselves. Geography as such is often ignored in the clash of civilizations or nations but it silently shapes everything that sits on top of it and boxing them within the walls of options and limitations it determines in large part what vulnerabilities an empire or nation faces and what tools it holds against those the little known battle of raichur 2 was one such example Economics and geography played a crucial role in the events and circumstances that led to this epic battle in 1520 AD. This battle was waged between the legendary Sri Krishna Devaraya of Vijayanagara and formidable rival Sultan Ismail Adil Shah Khan of the Bijapur Sultanate. The Battle of Raichur saw a number of firsts in the Indian and South Asian history. starting from the earlier significant appearance of cannons whether used offensively as field artillery or used defensively on the walls of the forts and next the earliest known appearance of matchlock firearms and the first significant use of european mercenaries it followed the fusion of new gunpowder technologies from india portugal and ottoman empire before we dive neck deep into the battle we ought to first understand the geography of raichur its implications and the complex backstory with raichur as a backdrop the city of raichur is in modern day karnataka and approximately 400 kilometers from bangalore the place itself has a long history and a legacy behind it due to its strategic location on the map it is nested between the great rivers of krishna and tungabhadra In the 16th century it was equidistant not just from prominent trade ports on either coast but also equidistant from the two major ports of Goa and Bhatkal on the western seaboard even more interesting fact was it being equidistant from Bijapur Hampi Golconda and Gulbarga so the potential for power projection from this central location was also pretty obvious The triangular region between these rivers is called Raichur Doab. Doab is an Arabic word that means a tract of land lying between two converging rivers. The Raichur Doab is considered to be very fertile because of the sediments carried by Krishna and Tungabhadra rivers. Sindhanoor and Gangavati along with Siruguppa produces the largest amount of paddy in Karnataka. In the Hatti gold mines 
in Lingasugur taluk of Raichore is currently the only working gold mine in India. It is also one of the oldest diamond mines dating back to pre-Ashokan and Mauryan times. These gold and diamond mines were lost at a point and then rediscovered in the late 19th century. After the Mauryan Empire, the region came under the control of the Satavahana dynasty, which ruled over central and eastern Deccan. Later in the early medieval period, Chalukyas of Badami, Rashtrakutas and Kalyani Chalukyas ruled over the Raichur-Doab region. In the subsequent centuries, the region was ruled by Kakatiyas of Varangal and Hoysalas before being conquered and annexed by the Delhi Sultanate. Even more so, in the 12th and 13th centuries, the region lay the conjecture of three regional powers. The Hoysala kings of Dwarasamudra, the Yadava kings of Devagiri and the Kakatiya kings of Varangal. It was in 1294 AD, a subordinate of the last king of the Kakatiya dynasty seized the Raichur Doab from Yadava control and built the imposing structure of the walls and gates that encircle Raichur's present core. An inscription records that it was built by Raja Vithala by the order of Raja Gore Gangaya, minister of Queen Rudrama Devi. But fortifications have existed since the time of the Chalukyas of Badami. And during the rule of Chalukyas of Kalyani, the fort was renovated. With their huge slabs of finely dressed granite, these walls were in their own day considered an engineering marvel. Even today, locals in Raichur regard them as the work of gods, not men. They are certainly the most impressive of any Kakatiya fortifications still standing, apart from those in Varangal, the dynasty's capital. Notwithstanding its strength, Raichur's fort got swept into the general chaos that engulfed the Deccan in the early 14th century, following the invasions by the armies of the Delhi Sultanate. After the collapse of the Kakatiyas in 1323 AD, Sultan Muhammad bin Tughlaq conquered the whole of Deccan, like we saw in the earlier foundation series, and even the Raichur Doab too fell under his rule. Few years after the fall of Kampili in 1328 AD, around 1330 to 1332 AD, the region then came under the direct control of Hoysalas as the nominal vassals of Tughlaqs and indirect control of Harihara of Sangamas, who had significant influence in this region and regions adjacent to it. By 1347 AD, with the fall of Tughlaqs and rise of the Bahmanis, the Doab fell into the hands of Bahmani Sultanate. Ruling from a series of capitals located to the north of the Raichur Doab, Daulatabad, Gulbarga and Bidar, the Bahmani Sultans claimed the territory clear down to the Tungabhadra River, which included the fertile tract. Yet, the fact that Sangamas and the Vijayanagara's founders seemed to have held the Doab before Vijayanagara's creation formed an important basis for its repeated claim to the tract. So, the conflict around this fertile tract of geography continued even after the fall of Delhi Sultanate. For the next century and a half, 
rulers of Vijayanagara and the Bahmani Sultanate fought bitterly for the control of this agriculturally and economically rich tract. For most of this period, however, the great part of the region remained under Bahmani control. Despite major invasions initiated by the Vijayanagara emperors in 1362, 1378, 1398 and 1443 AD. Vijayanagara rulers did achieve a few successes in the contested region. In 1362, 1436 and 1443 AD, the Vijayanagara army briefly captured Mudgal, which is located in the Doab, some 60 miles west of Raichur city. On each occasion, however, the Mudgal fort was soon recaptured by the Bahmanis. from 1444 AD and possibly from as early as 1398 AD Vijayanagara rulers Harihara II and Devaraya II were even forced to make annual tributary payments to the Bahmanis in between 1468 to 1469 AD capitalizing on new engineering technology imported from North India and the Middle East Bahmanis built an entirely new wall around Raichur's old Kakatiya fortifications complete with an outer moat numerous bastions and imposing gates on the city's eastern and western sides the bahmanis took significant inspiration from their predecessors tughlaqs and khiljis when it came to siege technology earthen battlements trebuchets and siege towers the tughlaqs especially were expert fort builders at sites like tughlaqabad in delhi one sees the distinctive architectural features massive projecting buttresses merlons turrets and crenellations merlons and crenellations are important parts of a fort or a castle which act as a defensive tower on top of the fort walls such features quickly diffused into the deccan as at Daulatabad, where the ramparts were replaced with a double line in lime mortar masonry, round bastions and turrets. The Bahmani rulers continued these architectural traditions in major forts such as Gulbarga, Firuzabad and Bidar. Ironically, even though the Bahmanis were making big strides in the matters of military technology, as of 1469 AD, The Bahmani kingdom had begun experiencing crippling factional struggles within its ruling elite. On one side were Deccanis or nobles descended from the original North Indian migrants who had settled in the upper Deccan in the 1320s. Thanks to Muhammad bin Tughlaq's failed idea of moving the entire court and nobles to the new capital of Daulatabad. I spoke about this at length in one of the previous foundation episodes. For those who missed it, you should check it out for a detailed backstory on it. And on the other side were the so-called Westerners, or also known as Gharbian, or immigrants freshly recruited from the Middle East, especially from the Persian-speaking world of Iran and Central Asia. Sectarian rivalries reinforced ethnic and linguistic differences between the two factions. as most westerners were shia muslims and most deccanis were sunnis by the 1480 to 1490s 
the deccani westerner tensions had intensified to a point that the bahmani ruler sultan mahmud could no longer command absolute loyalty among his most powerful nobles some of whom began establishing independent states within his domain one of these nobles was yusuf adil khan a westerner immigrant from iran who in 1490 ad carved out a new kingdom of bijapur from the bahmani sultanate's western and southern districts which included the raichur doab or also known as the golden triangle although yusuf adil khan continued to pay formal homage to the bahmani sultan mahmud his audacious soft rebellion alarmed other independent and influential nobles one of whom sought to weaken bijapur's position by inviting vijayanagara's army to invade raichur as a result vijayanagara jumped on the juicy offer to further weaken its arch rival and nemesis the bahmani's position in 1492 ad it invaded raichur and captured the city although yusuf adil khan managed to recapture the fort later the same year until as late as 1515 ad the bahmani sultan mahmud's name continued to appear on the raichur inscriptions as the region's legitimate ruler maintaining the fiction that yusuf adil shah and his successors in bijapur were merely bahmani governors like i explained in the previous episodes this is a well-known tactic used by the vassals who have effectively usurped their sovereign's power from under their feet the apparent subservience of the powerful and independent vassals is just a way to gain legitimacy through association with the royal throne nonetheless bijapur's rulers and yusuf adil shah's successors behaved as completely independent sultans and their chroniclers too styled them like that another interesting thing was while the bahmani sultanate was faltering during the same time the first vijayanagara dynasty of sangamas too was in the process of imploding after a series of incompetent successors in a span of few decades the greatest successor in the sangamai dynasty is usually considered to be devaraya ii who oversaw significant expansion of the empire after him mallikarjuna raya and virupaksha raya ii squandered away the gains of devaraya ii with their incompetence debauchery and overindulgence into sensual pleasures that disastrous rule led to the eventual overthrow of the sangamai dynasty by saluva narsimha devaraya who was a mahamandaleshwar of chandragiri and with the military coup of his saluva inaugurated the saluva dynasty which was the second vijayanagara ruling line so you see both the bahmanis and sangamas rose and fell almost at the same time for all practical purposes like i mentioned in the birth of a nemesis foundation episode they both were indeed the sides of the same coin despite the prolonged bahmani hegemony over the raichur doab by the first decade of the 16th century the balance of power began to tilt towards vijayanagara for the first time since 1347 ad by the 1500s 
the integrity of the bahmani sultanate had become seriously compromised and by the second decade of the 16th century the kingdom had disintegrated into five de facto successor kingdoms these were kingdoms of bijapur ahmednagar bidar golconda and berar if you remember the first episode of the season battle of talikota we had seen all five of them form a mega alliance against vijayanagara to take down alia ramaraya in the epic battle which changed the course of south india's history so the disintegration of the bahmani sultanate meant that any invasion of raichur duwab from vijayanagara in the south would now be met not by the full might of the old bahmani sultanate but by the adil shah rulers of bijapur could only field armies that were a fraction of the size of those of its parent state the bahmanis not surprisingly bijapur inherited the same westerner deccani or the shia sunni factionalism that had plagued the bahmanis which was the main reason for its social political collapse around 1505 ad while bijapur was in the process of amassing power and the bahmanis being relegated to a vegetative state in terms of power and influence in vijayanagara the salwa dynasty had imploded within a span of 20 years after a total misrule and incompetence of the successors of salwa narsimha devaraya and with its implosion the tuluva dynasty took over the reins of power officially after the ascension of veera narsimha raya Veera Narasimha Raya was the elder half brother of Shri Krishna Dev Raya. We will explore in a different episode in depth the rise of Tuluvas, dramatic ascension of Shri Krishna Dev Raya and his glorious rule. For now, let's skip to 1509 AD after the ascension of Shri Krishna Dev Raya to the lion's throne. Between 1509 to 1520 AD while the bahmani sultanate had fully fragmented into five mutually quarreling sultanates krishnadevaraya conquered and annexed the entire peninsula from the southern edge of the raichur duwab to the cape comorin and as a result amassing immense manpower and capital resources for its effort to regain the control of raichur from bijapur in addition to krishnadevaraya's military successes to help consolidate the hold of vijayanagara on the south another factor that tipped the balance of power in its favor was the advent of the portuguese estado da india portuguese were a formidable coastal power since 1498 ad and this european newcomer in the subcontinent sought to monopolize control over the arabian sea commerce portuguese arrival in the indian subcontinent was a result of their aggressive anti-islamic foreign policy which was part of its reconquista policy this meant that portuguese also sought to roll back muslim states everywhere and especially the newly emerged bijapur sultanate which had inherited from the bahmanis control over a good deal of india's western sea coast in addition to the raichur duwab such objectives 
or policies naturally inclined the Portuguese to seek allies in Vijayanagara. Considering it was the Deccan and South's principal non-Muslim power, and it only wanted to exploit Vijayanagara's hostility towards Islamic sultanates in the north. A dramatic step in this direction was taken in 1510 AD when the Portuguese viceroy and master strategist Afonso de Albuquerque arrived in India. Afonso advanced the threefold Portuguese grand scheme of combating Islam, spreading Christianity, and securing the trade of spices by establishing a Portuguese Asian empire. He was assisted by a coastal chieftain loyal to Vijayanagara and captured the important port of Goa from Bijapur's Yusuf Adil Khan. With this action in Goa, let's look at an excerpt of what the Portuguese viceroy Afonso wrote to the king of Portugal. Quote, we can diminish the credit that is enjoyed by the Turks, Turks as in Bijapur, and the fear in which they are held, and persuade Vijayanagara that we are men who can do deeds as great on the land as on the sea. Let us thus see if I can have them move their armies against the Bijapur in Deccan and desire a true friendship." Unquote. It is important to understand why and how Afonso sounded so confident of being an important player in Deccan politics. The key to his confidence was the newly acquired leverage of Afonso on the Portuguese over both the Bijapur and Vijayanagara empires. Afonso plays a political and military masterstroke to press the buttons of both these powers. The Portuguese realized the weakness of the powers in Deccan and South, especially the Bijapur Sultanate and Vijayanagara. It was the tight dependency on war horses that were imported by sea from the Middle East. Before 1510 AD, Bijapur had imported most of its war horses through its port of Goa, whereas Vijayanagara imported its horses through ports further down the coast, in particular the port of Bhatkal. The master stroke that the Portuguese Afonso played was he negotiated separately with Bijapur's Adil Shah and Vijayanagara's Krishnadevaraya for the Portuguese to become the sole trading partner for them. And Afonso follows this up with a move that neutralizes any future attempt by either of them to get out of this trade treaty. Portuguese basically launched a naval expedition against a crucial choke point which is the port of Hormuz in the Persian Gulf in 1515 AD and they captured it. Then the Portuguese used the Portuguese naval power in the Persian Gulf to force the entire horse trading traffic to Goa and thus effectively giving the Estado da India or which is nothing but the Portuguese trading company a total monopoly on the war horses trade. It's worth making a note that the arrival of Portuguese in India was a spark that triggered an eventual arrival of the French and the British within the next hundred years. With this, we will end this episode here. 
in which we saw the importance of Raichur Doab were a great game between the Islamic Sultanates and Vijayanagara Empire was being played intensely. We saw how this attracted the attention of the Portuguese as part of an even bigger great game that was being played between Islam and Christianity across the Middle East and it's spilling into Asia. This will have a far-reaching impact later on the fortunes of the entire Asia, whose ripples we still feel to this day and are yet to fully shed the shackles of tragic colonial past. I sincerely hope the listeners enjoyed this episode and if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave a rating and a review wherever it is that you're listening. A huge thank you for taking the time to listen to the show. I hope to see you soon in the next episode. Till then, this is Narendra Vikram, your host and narrator, signing off. Hope you have a great week ahead.